It might surprise you to learn that I've never been hunting. Um, although I would quite like to go. Um, I have friends who go hunting all the time, including one slightly crazy friend who's passionate about duck hunting. Um, and he's had several near-death experiences in his relentless pursuit of ducks. Um, since I myself grew up in England, there wasn't much opportunity for me to go hunting, seeing that I didn't have a landed estate, a horse, a bright red coat, or a pack of hounds. Um, but even though I've never been hunting, I think I understand the key principle of the thing, um, that the thrill is in the chase, right? Uh, you expect that your quarry is going to make your life difficult. Um, so I saw this funny YouTube video that was posted by two hunters who were all geared up and on their way out to their favorite place in the woods. And they crossed an open field and there was a young fawn, a beautiful baby deer, right there in front of them in the open. And instead of running away from them, this fawn came right over to them like a puppy and started running around them uh, curiously. And it was sniffing around the muzzles of their rifles. Um, and in this video, the guys are just laughing. They've never seen anything like this before. And of course, they have no interest in shooting that deer. It's not doing its job. There's no fun in that, because hunting's all about the chase, right? Uh, normally, you expect that you have to work hard to catch your prey. You have to train yourself and, fi and find the right equipment and get up early and be patient. No one expects to find the most exciting trophy game just sitting around in an open field waiting to be shot because they hide. And so the best places to look for them are the toughest and thorniest and least accessible parts of the wild. Now, I think it's a bit like that with the word of God too. Uh, so there are many parts of the Bible that are easy to understand, like open fields where you can clearly see where you are and where you're going. But then there are also parts of the Bible that feel very difficult, complicated, thorny, and hard to understand. Parts where you might start to feel a bit lost. And maybe we tend to skip over those difficult parts when we read through Scripture, and we just stick to the well-trodden paths through the open fields. And that's fine if you do. Uh, it's good to have a steady diet of the straightforward truths that we hold on to. But in my experience, so often those tough and thorny parts of Scripture <coughs> hold some real treasure. There's game in there that's worth the hunt. Um, but we also need to be extra careful with these passages because it's so easy to go wrong with them. The mysterious parts of Scripture have been the seedbeds of heresies and cults throughout history. So we need to use our best tools to interpret them carefully. Um, so today... I'm going to take us deep into the wild woods. Uh, we're going to study Psalm 82, which is one of our assigned lectionary readings for today. Um, and one of the best, best things about having a lectionary is it calls you to read and think about parts of the Bible that you don't normally think about. So it pushes you out of your comfort zone. Uh, and so today we're going to have to work a little bit harder than normal. I know that it's back to school week for a lot of you, teachers, students. Uh, you've been getting up early, you're a little bit extra sleepy, um, but today we're going to have to work a little bit extra hard to understand God's Word. So please find Psalm 82 in your Bibles. It's page 492, Psalm 82. Psalm 82 says, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. 
They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So you might have heard that many of the themes in this psalm are familiar enough to us, but what's hard about it is figuring out how all these pieces fit together. And hardest of all, who is this psalm talking about? Um, so verse 6 says, I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. And that really grabs our attention. Who is speaking there and who is he talking to? Because this is a psalm and it stands alone and we don't get much in the way of historical context. It doesn't come as part of the story of anyone's life. We don't know what was happening in the world when this psalm was written, what conversations and thoughts Asaph might have been having when he wrote it. Um, Sometimes at the beginning of the psalm you get a title that tells you what was going on and why it was written, but not this time. Uh, So the most that we get in terms of context is what it says in verse 1 where it says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So God we know, that's a good start. But where is he? What is this divine council? So I, I look this up, I chase this one down, and in the Hebrew, the phrase is literally the assembly of God. Um, and, um, and then, of course, I discovered that this is the only place that that phrase is used in the whole Bible. Um, so, great, that doesn't help very much. Uh, pretty much left to guess what that means. Um, and then the second half of the verse doesn't really help very much either, because the, it says that the council is in the midst of the gods. What does that mean to you? Uh, the rest of the Bible only acknowledges one god. So who are these other gods? Are they angels? Are they demons? Are they idols? Are they men? It's another question that's pretty difficult to answer. So the context that we're given in the psalm uh, leaves us with more questions than answers. And then throughout the whole rest of the psalm, no other specific names are mentioned, no specific (coughs) historical events, and so we might still get to the end wondering, what does verse 6 mean? So this is a mysterious and otherworldly psalm, and it's easy to get lost in it pretty quickly. Now, one thing I learned as a kid is if you can't solve the maze going forward, then sometimes you can solve it going backward. In fact, sometimes that's easier. You start at the end and try to work back to the beginning. So what happens if we do that to the psalm? What's the destination of this psalm? If we can answer that, maybe it will shed light on what the starting point is and who it's talking to. So let's start with this guy who wrote it, Asaph. Who was Asaph? Asaph was a Levite who was appointed by David to lead the temple choir. So he was like the choir master of Israel under kings David and Solomon. And Asaph wrote 12 of our psalms in the Psalter. Uh, He wrote Psalm 50 and then 73 through 83. And when you look at the psalms that Asaph wrote, you see that he did a lot of thinking about God's coming judgment. Okay, so uh, in Psalm 50, he wrote, God himself is judge. In Psalm 73, he had this big wrestling match with himself with how comfortable and successful the wicked seem. And then at the end of it, he remembers their coming judgment. In Psalm 74, he says, Arise, O God, and defend your cause. In Psalm 75, he says, God will judge with equity. And in Psalm 76, he says, Who can stand before you? So Asaph did a lot of thinking and writing about judgment. 
And that does give us a little bit of context for Psalm 82, which we can see also begins and ends with this idea of judgment. So verse 1 says, In the midst of the gods he holds judgment. And verse 8 says, Arise, O God, and judge the earth. So God is judge, and the psalmist is calling for him to do his work. But then we notice that God isn't the only person who's doing judging in this psalm. Because verse 2, God says to his mysterious audience, how long will you judge unjustly? And then in verse 3, he commands them to give justice. So God is a judge, and he's speaking to judges. In Psalm 82, the recipients of God's judgment are themselves judges. So I said here before that God is not only the king of kings, but also the judge of judges. And that's what's happening here. The judges are being judged. Um, and then we also see that there's a pattern of promotion and demotion in this psalm. So in verse 6, it was God who gave them their exalted title and their exalted role. God said, I said, you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. So that's referring back to some earlier promotion. God gave them their high rank, whoever they are. Uh, but then in verse 7, he demotes them again. He says, nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. So within a couple of verses, these characters are promoted and then demoted. And consequently, after they've been judged and toppled from their high position, the psalmist calls for God to rise up and take their place. Verse 8, arise, O God, and judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So the pattern is that the judges are being judged, and then there's promotion and demotion. And for anything else that might be unclear about this psalm, this part is extremely clear, and that's the reason for their demotion, which is, in verse 2, that they judged unjustly and showed partiality to the wicked. And again, in verse 3, they did not give justice to the weak and fatherless or maintain the rights of the afflicted and the destitute or rescue the weak and the needy to deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Now, friends... Here we have the definition of what God means by justice. That's what he wanted to see his appointed judges doing. And they weren't doing it, so he demoted them and judged them. So notice here very clearly that justice is defined by its treatment of the poorest and the least. That's the standard by which these judges are measured. What did you do for the afflicted and the destitute? And it says here that a judge who isn't doing anything for the poor isn't doing anything. It says that the people who have the highest and loftiest status, the ones who are closest to God himself, are the ones who are most expected to share God's concern for the poor. So to be great, to be truly like God, means to be the servant of the least as God himself is. So why are the judges in Psalm 82 not doing that? Why aren't they doing their job? The answer is because they are blind. Verse 5 says, They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. So this is another mysterious part of the psalm. What does that mean? And here we, uh, we have great help from a Jewish scholar named Ibn Ezra, who was a famous exegete. Um, and he knew his Hebrew Bible backwards and forwards, and he was especially good at connecting the dots between Bible passages. 
Um, and Ibn Ezra taught that the way to understand verse 5 of Psalm 82 was in light of Exodus 23, verse 8, which says, You shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. So the judges in Psalm 82, verse 5, walk about in darkness because they've accepted bribe money and consequently it's made them blind following the logic of Exodus 23. And that also makes sense of why it is they've shown partiality to the wicked, as it says in verse 2, because it's the wicked who paid them off. So almost all the scholars since Ibn Ezra have agreed with him. Uh, they think his insight was pretty wonderful, um, and I'm personally sure he's right. Uh, and it's very helpful because what his insight does is unite all the pieces of this psalm together. It shows, it shows us who the audience must be. It must be the people who received God's law, perhaps in particular Israel's judges. They were established by God to bring about God's justice for his people, but instead, against God's explicit warnings, they accepted bribe money and so went blind. So we can see here that a bribe always perverts justice, right? That's the reason that you give someone a bribe. Uh, if justice was going to win your case, then you wouldn't need a bribe at all. And the pattern is that bribery always directs the course of justice in favour of the rich against the poor, doesn't it? Because it's only the rich who can afford the bribe. So then, a judge who will take a bribe even once proves that he will betray justice for a certain price. And once you're willing to do that once, you're going to be willing to do that every time. And once you're willing to do that every time, then all of your verdicts will be wrong, won't they? Every single one of them. What you rule will be wrong every time. It will go against justice. So that judge may as well be completely blind. That's what God says in Exodus 23. They might as well have stuck a dagger in each eye. Actually, better that they had stuck a dagger in each eye than that they'd ever accepted a bribe. Because at least with no eyes, there would still be a chance of giving a just verdict. So we see in God's word that bribery is extremely dangerous and toxic to justice. And yet we know that a good portion of our world today still runs on some system of bribery. And that goes a long way to explaining why it's so hard to find justice. I have paid bribes myself, twice, in two countries that I visited. Because it was the system. You had to. There was no other way to function. And I will say uh, that it's one of the strengths of our own legal system in America that judges and juries are prohibited from receiving bribes or gifts of any kind. A great effort has been made to extinguish bribery. And I'm not saying that our courts always give justice or that bribery doesn't happen, but strong measures are taken to stop it happening, so at least there's a chance of justice having its say. Um, here in God's Word, we see why that's so important. All right, so coming back to Psalm 82, I think working backwards through the maze and starting with the destination has shown us who it's talking about. God himself is speaking in verses 2 through 7, and he's speaking to the human leaders of Israel, and maybe in particular to Israel's judges. And when you look at what other scholars have said about this, it's reassuring that they've come to the same conclusion. Uh, the vast majority opinion uh, is that Psalm 82 is either talking about Israel's judges or maybe to the whole congregation of Israel as they receive the law. All right then, 
Back to where we started. God is addressing men with men when he says in verse 6, I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Okay, so we've come to this astonishing conclusion that God is saying to men, you are Elohim, which almost always means God's. And these same people are part of his council in verse 1. Takes his seat among the gods. So he's using of them an amazingly high title. We would never dare to use this language of people if God wasn't the one who was saying it. But he does say it here uh, that through the giving of his eternal word, he has elevated people to a dizzyingly high status. Sons of the Most High God, only a little lower than himself. And when they don't do their jobs, the effect of that is that it shakes the foundations of the earth. Do you see that language in the psalm? That's the sign of just how important God has made them. So now we find that this obscure and mysterious psalm is actually important to our whole understanding of who God is and who we are to him. So Jesus goes to this psalm in John chapter 10 when he wants to answer a critical question about his own identity. So we're going to go there together now. It's John chapter 10, and it's page 896. John 10 on 896. Uh, We're going to look at this part much more briefly before we wrestle with uh, what all this means for us today. So in John chapter 10 and verse 30, Jesus is talking to a crowd of Jews in Jerusalem, and he says to them, I and the Father are one. And uh, to them, as to us, that was an unmistakable claim of personal divinity. And the Jews who heard Jesus say that picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy, which was what they should have done according to the Lord Moses. Uh, And Jesus asked them why they were going to stone him, and they told him for blasphemy. So it's clear that they were picking up what he was laying down. Um, And in response, Jesus quoted to them from Psalm 82. Here's what Jesus said in John 10, verse 34. Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I say I am the Son of God? Even if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not, sorry, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So these are really incredible words. Uh, What Jesus is doing here is he's defending his own claim of divinity from God's word in Psalm 82, which Jesus calls an eternal, unbreakable scripture. And uh, his point is that It's up to God to say who's a God and who's not. It's not up to people. And God has said it before of men in their own law in Psalm 82. So this shouldn't come as too much of a surprise. And if you look at Psalm 82, if the wicked judges in the psalm could be called gods by the Father's own mouth because he has given them his word, how much more appropriate is that title to the perfect Son of God whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world? See the reasoning? Jesus is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. And finally, he points out to them the evidence for his claim lies in his works, not especially because they're miraculous, but especially because they're just. Right? 
So will these spectators recognize that the behavior of this man in their midst toward the weak and fatherless and the afflicted and the destitute and the needy is exactly the behavior that Psalm 82 was talking about? This finally is justice. This is the behavior of the righteous judge, the one who will inherit all the nations, and his works make that obvious. So God in Jesus has now fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 82. God has answered the psalmist's prayer, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. And here he is. That's what he's doing. Psalm 82 is really about Jesus, as we find with the rest of the Old Testament too. Now, the good news about injustice is that Jesus has come to put a final end to it, to bring justice to all nations. And he's here now, and he is the world's incorruptible judge. So God has removed all the faulty human judges that did the job of him before, and he's replaced them with his son, Jesus. And that is a really good trade, uh, because Jesus holds up the standard of justice the Old Testament is talking about. He never takes a bribe, and his eyes work perfectly. We know that every case on earth, large and small, will eventually be brought before him, including your case and mine, and there will be justice in the end. And we should live in the daily hope of that and the daily fear of that. And in the meantime, all the verdicts of our human courts are only temporary. They're subject to appeal to Jesus. He will be the judge of all judges. So may all the rulers and authorities on earth live in the holy fear of that day. But now, what about for us? What does Psalm 82 say to us? Uh, most of us are pretty low on the human totem pole, rarely have to judge important matters. Um, so does Psalm 82 have anything to say to us? Um, and I think it does. It has a lot to say, because behind God's specific address to Israel's elders are some core principles that are all over the Bible and are important for us today. So here I think in one uh, short sentence is the message I want us to take home from this word. Um, the sentence is, the word of God has come to me and made me great, therefore I will serve. It helps us to define who we are and what we're here for. The word of God has come to me and made me great, therefore I will serve. So let's think about the three parts of that statement. First, the word of God has come to me. If you still have John chapter 10 open, look at verse 35. Jesus said, he called them gods to whom the word of God came. Right? So the key part of their greatness was that the word of God had come to them. Um, so the word of God came to Israel at Mount Sinai in the form of the law, the Torah of Moses. And by receiving that law, the people were made great. Israel was turned into a great nation. Um, and we can say for ourselves that the word of God has also come to me. Yes, it has come in written form in the Bible, but that's, uh, that same word that came to them is now translated into my own language. But even more powerfully and profoundly, we have come to know the word made flesh. Jesus, God's word incarnate, he has come to us. And if the coming of the first word made the people of Israel great, how great then? are the people who have received the word made flesh. So the second part of the sentence is that he has made us great. The most striking verse in Psalm 82 is verse 6. I said, you are gods. By God's declaration, they were very great, sons of the Most High. 
And if we are among those who received God's word and put our trust in Jesus, then we too are very great. I'm not saying that to flatter you or to inflate your egos. I say it because God's word says it. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that you are consecrated to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus himself was consecrated to God. It also says in Matthew 28 that you are sent out on the mission of God, just as Jesus was sent on the mission of God. And it says in Galatians 3 verse 26 that you are sons and daughters of God. Paul says, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith, just as the elders in Psalm 82 were called sons of God. Which is amazing. There are amazing things for the Bible to say. The New Testament does stop short of repeating the Old Testament language of you are gods. And since it doesn't say that, I don't think we should say it either. But it only stops very slightly short of saying that. And that should be plenty high enough for us and already more altitude than we can handle. Um, so God's word addresses you not as people who are lowly, but as people who are great. And it's not our decision who gets to be great. It's entirely God's decision. We might want it or not want it. It doesn't matter. It's not our decision. God has said it of you. We might feel it or we might not feel it. And it doesn't matter. It's true either way. Because God has said it. And nothing about your worldly status has any bearing at all on your heavenly status. So you might live in a small house or a trailer or not have a home at all. Jesus didn't. You might worry about how you pay your AC bill or put food on the table, and that doesn't change the fact that you are great. Mm. Jesus has said that you will inherit the earth. You might not have a very good job or not be able to find a job at all. You might not be very well known or have hardly anyone who knows your name. But still, you are very great in heaven. All the saints know who you are. Or conversely, you might have jumped right into the rat race and fought hard and gone far. You might have a Swiss bank full of gold and a cell phone full of big shop contacts. Um, that's okay if you have. But what has it added to your heavenly status? Nothing at all. Not even the tiniest bit. Heaven might not even have heard of you. And if you're not great with God, then all you are is the big kid on the island bullying all the smaller kids. And what will happen to that kid when the adult parachutes in? Um, so, some of the loneliest people on earth are great in heaven. And some of the greatest people on earth are lowliest in heaven. Alright, so we, we see this um, depicted in the movie Aladdin that was just remade. Um, it has both things happening in this movie, right? So earlier in the movie, Jasmine, who really is a princess, dresses as a commoner to go out in the streets, and people will look at her as an ordinary person until they realise she's actually Jasmine. Later on in the movie, Aladdin, who's actually uh, a street rat, um, uh, dresses as a prince to go into the palace, and everyone treats him as a prince even though he's only a street rat. Um, and so there are people walking about the earth who are in both positions, right? The saints of God are jasmine, princesses of the palace, who pretend to be paupers. And um, many of the important people in this world are Aladdin, pretending they belong in the palace when they're just street rats. <laughs> Why is this important for us to know? Because if we forget it, if we start to feel small and powerless, then we can fall into despair when we have no reason for despair. Or we can hide our light out of personal shame when we have no reason to be ashamed. Or we can fight back with bitterness and rage and so fall into sin. But if we remember that we're actually great, 
that we can bring the problems of the world before the living God and he will listen to us. Then we can bear suffering with patience and pray with confidence and wait with hope. And also, we can gladly give ourselves to service. So the last part of the sentence is, therefore, I will serve. The word of God has come to me and made me great. Therefore, I will serve. Okay? So if we feel that we have to make something out of ourselves or prove something with our lives, then giving ourselves to service is always going to be hard. It will feel humiliating and distracting and unproductive. But if we start off knowing that our identity is found in God and that he has called us great, then it frees us to take on the role of the servant gladly. How do we know this? Because it's exactly how it worked for Jesus. He said in Mark 10 verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So you can see in these words a strong sense of personal identity. Jesus knew that he was the greatest man who'd ever walked on the surface of the earth. So he gladly chose to serve the rest of us. On the last night of his life, the night before he went to the cross, Jesus, knowing where he had come from and where he was going, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. He knew he was great, and he gave himself to service. Paul wrote, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, though he was in very nature God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the very form of a servant. So do you see in Jesus how the greatness and the service go together? And in Psalm 82, the judges were called great, and all that was expected of them was their service, that they serve God and uphold the cause of justice that he had handed to them. And if we want to participate in saving the world and helping the poor and bringing justice to the oppressed, then what we need to do is to serve God. Nothing more, nothing less. The word of God has come to me and made me great, therefore I will serve. So when you get up in the night to feed a baby, you can say, I am one of God's great ones, and this I do to serve my God. When you drive your children to soccer practice for the millionth time, you can say, I am a prince in God's kingdom, and I choose to do this in service to my God. And when you clock in faithfully to your boring job day after day, you can say, I am great. This is the work God has given me to do, and I am glad to serve him. So our knowledge of our greatness and our decision to take on the form of a servant make us like Jesus, and they give our lives dignity and purpose. And by this we participate in God's great work of bringing justice on the earth. Even in these small ways, we faithfully execute what he has given us to do because we serve the servant of all who has now been made judge over all. Amen. Amen.